I'm really excited for the message that we have today. For those of you that maybe are here for the first time, we're actually in a series called The Church Jesus is Building. And it comes out of a very simple thing Jesus said to his disciples. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so what we've been wanting to do is say, are we on course to be the church Jesus intended to build? Do we look like what he wants us to look like? And the best place that we can find a picture of the church Jesus is building, the best place we can get an idea of what we're supposed to be doing and who we're supposed to be is in the book of Acts. Because Jesus was there in the beginning of the book of Acts, teaching his disciples, then he ascended to heaven. Right after that, they began what we refer to as the New Testament church, the birth of the church um, upon the earth. And so we want to go back to the opening chapters of Acts. That's what this series is about. If you've missed any of it, good news, it is online or on our app if you want to catch up because today is actually part seven and we will finish next week with part eight. Now, I was gone for the last two weeks, actually, and when I was gone, I asked Eric to jump ahead to a different part uh, because I wanted to cover these last two weeks. I've been really excited for these last two parts because they're going to be very different in a sense. Every other part of the series so far, we've been looking at the model of what we should be. For these last two parts, we're going to look a little more at the model of what we shouldn't be. Because we need to ask this question. If we're going to be the church that Jesus intends, is there a possibility that something could creep into the church that shouldn't be there? I think the answer is yes. And so these last two parts of the series, we're actually going to preach them as a warning to you and me. And if you say, why is there a warning for us? Well, I'm going to give you a new phrase. We've been using the same phrase all throughout the series. I'm going to give you a new one today. And it's this. The church Jesus is building will always be the church Satan is attacking. Did y'all get that? The church Jesus is building, we've been talking about for six weeks. For two weeks, we're going to talk about the fact that the church Jesus is building will always be the church Satan is attacking. And so if we want to be the church Jesus intends, then we need to know what Satan wants, right? Now, I bet if I gave you a microphone, we went around the room right now and said, let's just take some guesses. What would Satan want for the church? I don't think it would take us more than two people before we'd get to one of the best answers ever, and that is Division, division, because you see, Satan knows something. He knows something that Jesus preached. I'll just share this with you. It's not quite into the message yet, but Jesus said, any house divided against itself will be ruined and any house divided against itself will fall. And so I think Satan said, all right, I've got my plan. These guys are doing some amazing things in the opening book of Acts. I just need to get in there and see if I can get them pointing fingers at each other. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced division in the church? Ever seen it personally? Sadly, most of us can say yes. Look, if last week was your first time going to church and you just gave your life to Jesus, you're just having the best life ever. But for anybody who has gone to church for any period of time or grew up in church, unfortunately, we have seen some division creep in. Maybe you go to church with a really good friend who will not talk to another really good friend you also go to church with. Don't be looking at and pointing fingers at anybody while I'm doing this, just for the record. You know, maybe you actually used to go to church and you were excited to get to church and serve on a team with somebody who now won't come anywhere near your church. As a pastor, I obviously have seen a lot of this up close and 
personally, way too much of it, to be honest, and, it, and it'll almost make you sick, you know? I mean, I've, I've seen people get offended, and instead of talking about it or working on it, they just leave the church offended. I've had people leave Grace Life because they say I'm not political enough, and then others leave the church because they say I'm too political. How can I be both? True story, I've watched churches split. And if you wonder, what is a church split? That's when half of the church gets so mad at the other half that they decide they're not going to have two separate churches. I've, true story, I've seen churches split over the vote of the color of the new carpet they were going to put in their auditorium. And now there's a church with red carpet and another church with green carpet. And uh, that's why we don't let you vote on any of the colors in our building around here. If we don't ask your opinion... You can't get mad at somebody else's opinion. If you don't like the colors, go home and paint your house. You can have it any color you want. You can be just as happy as a lark. Now, look, here's the reason we need to talk about this, because what happens is we get a little jaded, and then we hold back. And no longer are we willing to be vulnerable with each other because we think, well, it won't be long before. If I'm vulnerable in my, my life group with somebody, it won't be long before they'll, they'll be mad at me, and they'll use what I said and and attack me with it or put it on social media or tell it to somebody else. So I'm just going to guard myself. We hold back from being vulnerable. We hold back from giving. We hold back from serving. We hold back from being the church Jesus is building, everybody. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at how the church in the book of Acts was so beautifully unified. And sadly, we're also going to see how they lost that. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're right at the end of chapter 4. And... Um, Again, it'll be on the screen if, if you don't have your Bibles to follow along. But in verse 32 is where we're going to pick up. It's kind of a summary. These few sentences I'm about to read are a summary of the first four chapters and the events and, and, and the effectiveness of the church at this point. And it starts out by saying, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And I just want to focus on what's underlined for a second before we go on. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. That means that everybody who was in Jerusalem worshiping Jesus as the Messiah had come together and they were more focused on Jesus being the Messiah and worshiping God than any other difference that you could actually say all of them, the full number of them, were of one heart and soul. And you can't miss this. We've already talked about it in the series that the full number was a big number. By chapter four, the church has grown to over 20,000 People, how in the world can you get over 20,000 people to be of one heart and of one soul? Because they were focused on Jesus more than anything else. And it was beautiful. The unity they had was beautiful. Let's keep reading and see how beautiful it was. It says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You can just imagine how wonderful that must have been. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Many scholars refer to these opening chapters of the book of Acts, these, the beginning of the, the church on the earth as the age of innocence. Many scholars also agree that the end of chapter four was the end of the age of innocence. You see, up until this point, outside of persecution from people outside, like the Jewish leaders and the Roman government, except for that, everything was powerful and ideal inside the church. But now, 
is we simply go one sentence into chapter five, which we'll look at next week. We start to see problems arise within and division. Matter of fact, let me show you what happens to this beautiful unity in just one sentence. You don't have to turn there. It's the first line of chapter six. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, come on, that's great news, isn't it? Lots of people going to heaven. There were rumblings of discontent. And the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. I want you all to notice what I underlined. The believers were complaining about the believers. Believers are complaining about believers. They seem to have forgotten that the Jewish leaders that don't believe in Jesus have said, you can't hire them. You can't shop at their stores. You can't associate with them. They're no longer complaining about what the Jewish leaders are doing to them. They seem to have forgotten that they are surrounded by one of the worst regimes in all of human history called the Roman Empire that has oppressed them and has brought all of their pagan beliefs to their land. They're no longer complaining about the Romans. Nope. They're complaining about other people who declare that Jesus Christ is the king. The problem is that what they started with that made them so united is no longer as important as their frustrations with each other. And so what I think would help us is if we could understand how were they so united up until this point? What did they have that made them an incredibly unified church? Turns out they had four core things they shared together that nobody else shared with them. And that unified them over these four things. The first one was that they shared beliefs. They shared beliefs. They alone believed the Messiah had come. The Romans didn't care about a Messiah, didn't believe in a Messiah. All the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, but only these select people in the church said, but Jesus is. A Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. And he was dead, but he's not dead now. He rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven. And no one else, not the Jewish believer, the Jewish community, and not the Romans shared their beliefs. I want you to follow this. Because their beliefs were so distinct from everyone around them, they were called mystics, lunatics, and cannibals. Because they were so strange in the fact that they believed a Holy Spirit was dwelling in them, given to them by this Messiah, and this Holy Spirit would empower them to do supernatural things, they were referred to as mystics. Because they believed that a dead man had come to life and then literally floated up to heaven, they were considered lunatics. And because they came together regularly to share in the blood and the body of their Messiah, they were considered cannibals. They had a set of shared beliefs that were so different and so unique from everyone around them that they were unified. Second thing that they had was a shared mission because they alone thought that they were called to be witnesses to the rest of the world that others would come to share in their beliefs, that Jesus was the Messiah and he had been raised from the dead. And those who could put their faith in him and would put their faith in him could have eternal life. But because of their shared beliefs and their shared mission, they had one other thing, shared persecution. We've already seen so far in these first four chapters how Peter and John have been put in jail if you continue reading in the book of Acts, you'll only have to get to the next chapter and we're gonna see that many of the apostles start to be put in prison. 
And if you go even further than we're gonna go in our series, you'll find out that they are, start gonna, they are gonna start to be persecuted even to the point of death. They alone, as a group, will suffer discrimination, oppression, abuse, torture, and death. You wanna be unified? That'll unify you when the whole world stands against you. And because they have these shared beliefs no one has and a shared mission no one has and persecution that they share because of everyone else, they have one more beautiful thing, and that is shared community. And I'm not gonna re-preach this point. We've already seen it, and, and I talked a lot about it in point number three, but it's that word. Luke only used that word once in the entire book of Acts, koinonia. You don't, remember, you don't need to remember the word koinonia, but you need to remember its definition. And it's an intimate association. Intimate. Again, you need to go back and hear part three if you missed that intimate association of those who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Their commitment to each other to the very end because of the intimate association. But now, by the end of chapter four, they have decided that their frustrations with each other were more important than those four things. How do you think we're doing today? How do you think the church on the earth fares in light of those four things? Anybody wanna take a look? I didn't think you would, but we're going to anyway because it's in my notes, so here we go. First of all, we actually divide over our beliefs today rather than unite around them. You see, there are some things that we call essential beliefs or primary beliefs, and it's important that we are focused on those. Jesus is the Son of God. He has risen from the dead, and he is at the Father's right hand. Everybody with me? You know what I'm saying. We should be baptized. That's a, a primary issue. The problem is that there are only a few primary issues, and there are a whole lot of secondary issues. Again, we should be baptized, but how should you do it? Here at Grace Life, we actually like to dunk you fully under the water, so if you're not a nice person, we leave you there a little longer because, you know, you just, okay, we'll let you up now. But I grew up in a church that didn't believe in putting you fully under the water. They believed in simply putting a little water on top of your head. You see, what's crazy is the church today has decided, wait a minute, you believe in sprinkling? Oh, we can't go to church with you. Wait a minute, you believe in dunking? We can't go to church with you. And now we have divided churches simply because of the amount of water? Yes. And then we have people who say, well, you know, we've got to believe that Jesus is going to come back and save us before the tribulation. And someone says, nope, Jesus is going to come back and save us after the tribulation. And so they divide. And then there are people that go, I don't know if I agree with you or with you. Matter of fact, can we start a whole third group for people who believe we're going out of here in the middle of the tribulation, right? And you think, oh, that's, that's not too bad. So we've just got these two groups over here. And these, no, no, no. Have you started to see the Venn diagram that occurs? Because over here, we have the people who believe you have to dunk. Now, those people are going to divide into pre-tribulation and post-tribulation and mid-tribulation. Are y'all with me? Here's the point. We now have over 30,000 denominations of Christianity upon the earth. I did not say 30,000 different churches. I said 30,000 different denominations all divided over how much water or when Jesus might come back or what kind of songs we sing or anything else. We're divided over our beliefs, mostly secondary issues. And then how about the mission? Turns out we're divided over the mission simply because we're usually divided over the method. Can you believe those people went out and did an outreach like that? Can you believe those people do that? I don't think that that's very effective. Well, I can't believe you would go and confront people about whether or not they believe in Jesus. Man, don't make them uncomfortable. I actually did a conference one time and I had a pastor because I was talking about the need to reach the lost. I had a pastor stand up in the back of the room 
and took over and destroyed the conference. Because he said, we don't need to reach the lost. Jesus said, the wheat and the tares grow together. The lost aren't our problem. And so we divide over the mission. Some people believe we're here to reach the lost, while others believe we're only here to take care of the sheep. And then many would say, since we don't share beliefs and we don't share methods for the mission, that now we have little to no commitment to each other at all. And unfortunately, they might be right. But the saddest one is the Last part, because we don't have much commitment to each other, we actually contribute to our own persecution. Do you want to know who points fingers at Christians the most in our world today? Christians. And we do it in front of all of the non-believers and the rest of the world to see so that they can join in the attacks or just laugh at us from afar. We attack churches that do things differently and preachers that preach differently or that we don't prefer publicly and on social media. Matter of fact, there's, there's a pastor my wife and I were talking about, I think about a year ago or so, and was just talking about something they were doing in their church. I happen to think just skill-wise, he's one of the best preachers in our country. I wouldn't do everything the way that he does it necessarily, but that's another story. But he still is one of the best preachers in our country. He pastors one of the largest churches in our country that he started from scratch in a school. He has seen thousands come to faith in Jesus and his church, and he's baptized thousands in a single day, which that's, that's a big deal, y'all. And as I was talking to my wife about what they were doing, she said, did you know there is a Facebook page of people who hate him? Over 17,000 members. Over 17,000 people that are Christians that have time to attack a pastor instead of Satan. I'm thinking we've kind of missed a little something here. And they all get on there and talk about his preaching style and how it can't be any good or their worship must be demonic because their church is so large. Can't be preaching the gospel. Really? I think they missed the book of Acts where you had 20,000 people by chapter four. Actually, it turns out the church grows large when you preach the gospel. Look, you may not agree with what I just said, but can I just give us all some advice? If you don't like something another pastor or another church or another Christian does or me by the end of this sermon, <laughs> find another church if you must, but don't do the devil's job for him. So here's what the Bible says. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And in case you're wondering who that is, Zechariah made it clear. Then the angel showed me Jeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations. Here's the reality. Someday Satan will be fully judged for his role as being the accuser of the brethren. And I don't think you and I want to be found on his side pointing fingers the same direction he is. So, what do you think is God's heart for the unity of his church? We'll share with you just a few scriptures. The Bible is full of them. One of the hardest jobs I had this week was deciding which ones not to share with you. But the Bible actually says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That's God's heart for his children upon the earth. Are there any parents in the room? I mean, there's nothing worse than when your children start fighting with each other and it's a real fight not just over who gets to sit where in the car. It breaks your heart. 
Paul wrote to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What would that be, Paul? That we be morally pure, that we are doing all of these things to, to be? No, actually, he only talks about one thing, and that is that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. You want your life to be worthy of the gospel? Then be unified with one mind, striving side by side, not striving against each other, not striving with each other, but striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on to tell the Corinthian church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, please agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Here's the reason I want you to understand this. I mean, that sounds good. And you're like, okay, that's a great sermon, Jimmy. That's a great passage. We can read scripture that we should agree. But you, you got to understand the context. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians, they're literally divided over their preachers and who baptized them. They have stopped saying, I follow Jesus. And they have started saying, well, I follow Paul. And the other says, no, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Peter. Peter baptized me. No, Apollos baptized me. They're not talking about Jesus anymore. They're talking about their preachers and their mentors. And they're making more out of individual humans than they are out of Jesus. And Paul says, are you kidding me? And I need you to understand his heart. I believe God looks down on earth and it breaks his heart when he looks at the division of his children today. Paul is coming to the, the, the Corinthian church as they're fighting over who baptized them and who preaches better and which one they're going to follow. He said, are you, guys, I've been stoned and literally left for dead. They thought I was dead. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. And little does he know it, but he'll actually be beheaded for preaching the gospel. Are you kidding me? You want to come together in here and you want to point fingers at who's better because of who was baptized by who when everybody out there wants to kill us and eventually they will. And that's what matters to you. I just want you to see Paul's heart because I believe it's God's heart. There's a world that hates the name of Jesus. There's a world that can't stand the idea that God has spoken truth. There is a world around us, many of which would say he doesn't even exist. We've got enough problems out there. We don't need to bring them in here. So the question for us today, and the whole point, of course, of preaching this message is to answer a very simple question. I think we owe it to ourselves to ask and answer. How can we be a unified church? How can we be a unified church? And there, there might be a, a long list of answers we could come up with, but for our purposes today, I think there are three that we can see very clearly in Scripture. I'm going to give you these three. And, well, if we get these three, I think everything will fall into place. You guys okay with that? The first one is this. Y'all real quiet. I'm not sure y'all liked everything I've had to say so far, but you think I said the tough stuff. Wait on this one. The first one is practice biblical conflict resolution. Practice biblical conflict resolution because there will be conflict. There are other humans in the church with you. And here's what the Bible tells you about how to resolve conflict. If someone has offended you, if someone has sinned against you, go and talk to them. If you have offended someone, if you have sinned against someone, go and talk to them. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And in case you're confused, nowhere in the Bible does it say go and talk about them to someone else. That might have made Facebook, but it didn't make the Bible. The Bible says, go and talk to them if they have bothered you. If you have bothered them, go and talk to them. And you may have gained your brother or sister. 
And if it doesn't work out, the conversation doesn't go the way you want it to go, then the next step is go and talk to them again, but take someone that can maybe help. Take an older mentor or a pastor or a friend. Take somebody that can go and and hopefully bring some peace to the situation. The bottom line, according to the Bible, Jesus was the one teaching, is don't just let an offense stay there. If you know someone's offended, talk to them. If you know you've offended, go and talk to them. Have the hard conversation to keep the devil out. Come on, y'all with me? But some of you may know, even if you have the hard conversation, even if you take someone with you, it doesn't always work out. And that leads to the second one. Choose forgiveness over bitterness. Choose forgiveness over bitterness. You see, here's the reality. You will be offended. It's gonna happen. But remaining offended is a choice. Matter of fact, being offended is only a reminder that you have pride. I know y'all don't want me to tell you that. You're supposed to say nice, loving things. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. But being offended only reminds you you have pride. Let me explain. You don't get offended when you are treated the way you think you deserve. You, are, you deserve to be treated. You get offended when someone treats you in a way less than what you think you deserve. You get offended when someone cuts you off in traffic because you think you deserve to be in front, Right? You get offended if the waitress dumps stuff all over you because you think you deserve to be treated well. That's what you pay them to do. However, if maybe you were very rude and insulted the waitress and then she dumps stuff all over you, you'd go, oh, I'm not offended. I deserve that. No one's ever going to say that, right? You see, the problem is anytime you get offended, you think someone should have said something nicer, done something nicer, treated you better, whatever the story is. We're only offended when we think we deserve to be treated better. Here's our problem. Jesus deserved to be treated better when he hung on the cross in your place and mine. And as he hung on the cross, he didn't say, how dare you? But he said, Father, forgive them. And that's our model. When Jesus taught on forgiveness, he never addressed who was right or who was wrong. And you know, when we get offended with someone, we make the entire story about who's right and who's wrong. I can't believe they did this. I can't believe they don't see their own flaws. I can't believe they think they're right about that. I can't believe. We go and talk to someone else and we present the story from where we're right and they're wrong. Jesus never touched on who was right or who was wrong. He simply said, forgive because we've been forgiven. The Bible says that we should bear with one another. And if one has a complaint, well, if you have a complaint, don't find out who's right or who's wrong. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. You've been forgiven much. You have to forgive much. And I thought it'd be good just to include a little thought here on forgiveness because I've been a pastor a long time. And it's funny, I watch people get frustrated and offended and mad at each other. And uh, I'll say, you know, you, you, you can forgive. And so, oh, oh, I've forgiven, pastor. I've just got new boundaries. Look, here's how you know you've forgiven somebody. You can and do pray for them. And that's not one of those prayers of, God, I pray you strike them dead. No, no, not that kind of prayer. That's, 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 yeah, no, that's not what we're talking about. But you can and you do pray for them. Another way you know you've forgiven is you actually want to see God bless them instead of judge them. Another way you know you've forgiven them is because you stop meditating on what they did to you. 
It's no longer the first thing you think about when you wake up or the last thing you think about when you go to bed, but it's something that you've released to God to deal with and it's far from your mind. With that being said, the third thing I wanna give you today that might help us be a unified church is if we allow differences without division. Allow differences without division. You see, every local church has a different worship style, a different preaching style, different culture, has different methods on what it's gonna do, how it's gonna do it. Is the church service 55 minutes long or three hours long? Do we dress up or do we dress down? You've figured it out around here already. We actually have to have a dress code policy for our worship team. You can't wear flip-flops on stage. It's the best thing about winter. Some of you finally had those ugly toes. But we've all got different ideas of what, what you should do when you go to church. And, and when we look at, well, this church does it this way and this church does it that way, you know, you could look at it as the beauty of diversity instead of division. Even if somewhere along the way, somebody was mad at somebody, today what we could do is look at the differences and say, you know what, those differences are a good thing because those differences allow us to reach people that other people can't reach. Perfect example, I hate country music with a passion. And if someone were to lead worship with a country music flair, that'd be a problem for me. Now, fortunately, with my job here at Grace Life, I have a say in this. So you never have to worry about that here. But let's just say that I were in your shoes and, and visited a church and, and they did country music style worship. That'd be tough. It'd be hard for me to think nice things about God while I'm cringing on the inside the whole time. Preachers preach differently. Some churches offer free coffee. Some churches don't let you bring it in. So you don't, I mean, everybody's got differences. So here's, here's what I want to recommend. Once you find the church that you feel God's called you to be a part of, and I recommend you you find the right church, and it's okay to have a, I prefer this preaching style, or and I prefer that dress code. And I pre but once you find the church God has called you to be part of, then fight the good fight for unity. Don't run away the first time you get mad at somebody. Don't get upset the first time the preacher preaches on an ununified church and the way we need to make a change. No, you don't, you don't get to do that. You get to choose the church God's called you to be a part of. But once you do, then fight the good fight to stay unified. Because I can promise you, you're going to have a difference of opinion on something. You will. I can promise you, you're going to get offended. I was leading a life group, men's group, just a few months ago, actually. And I was, I was trying to talk to these men about how at some point you're going to deal with this. At some point you're going to get offended. Matter of fact, at some point, crazy idea, some of you are going to actually get offended at me. And so in a purely rhetorical question, hypothetical, never meant to be answered, I said, anybody in here offended with me? And one of them raised his hand and said, yep, twice already. <laughs> I was offended. How have I done that much wrong already to you, man? I couldn't have offended you twice already. You're the one with the problem. <laughs> See how easy that is? 
Once you find the church God has called you to, an offense will come, difference of opinion will come. You're gonna have to fight the good fight to stay unified. So I just wanna close with trying to put a beautiful picture in your head, if you'll allow me. I think our imaginations are a gift from God. Let's see if we can redeem it for a second. What could the church look like on the earth? And what could happen? What could God do if we were the unified church Jesus is building? Well, the truth is, you don't even have to imagine it because it's in the book of Acts. Here's what we've seen so far. They ministered with great power. Great grace was upon them all. All their needs were met. Outsiders were amazed and wanted to join in. God in heaven was glorified, and the church on the earth grew exponentially and powerfully, meaning people were going to heaven. Miracles were being done. All because of the anointing of unity. You know, we have something here in Columbia. Pastors getting together, referring to one city, one church, one mission. It's a thing. We've actually got logos and cups and T-shirts, and we all wear them doesn't have the name of any church on it. There's only one church in this city is what we believe. And because of that, we've come together to do some things. Some of you have heard about these. One of them is called Pray Cola. And it's where over 50 churches have come together to take an hour of the day with each uh, an individual believer signing up. Each church taking a day of the month. And now Columbia and its leaders are covered in prayer 24 hours a day, seven days a week by over 50 churches asking God to move in our city. And you know what's beautiful about that? When someone falls out of bed and gets on their knees for their 3 a.m. time slot, God doesn't ask what church they attend on Sunday morning. It's the church in the city of Columbia moving. That's Pray Cola. We also have something called Love Cola where we all come together to do outreaches and things here in our city to reach people for Jesus. And we don't wear our own t-shirts. Matter of fact, we just did one a few weeks ago, just last month. And we brought Convoy of Hope to town. It cost over $60,000. And I tell you, if you wanna get a pastor to, to get along with somebody and find out if they actually like somebody, ask them to bring money to the table. But over 25 churches ended up working together to bring Convoy of Hope to town. Over 600 volunteers from over 25 churches came together to make much of Jesus, and we saw people get saved and the community's needs be met. Isn't that cool? And I bet somebody in here is thinking, well, Jimmy, that's easy. You guys are pastors. Of course you get along. <laughs> Let me tell you, there is nobody more passionate about their secondary issues than pastors. I've got one pastor that I have lunch with every month and a group of these pastors. I'm in, I'm in several different groups all across the city as we try to stay a unified church. <clears throat> and every month I get to go and sit at a table with a pastor who seems to think the best way to get staff members is to hire them from here <laughs> without ever asking me if it's going to hurt Grace Life if he offers them more money and they go. I go to another meeting where I have a pastor who has tried to talk some of our young college students out of coming here because he believes this is not a safe place since I don't preach the Bible. Could be offended. Truth is, it probably was for a moment. But we're one church in the city and we're unified because we choose to focus on Jesus 
over those little issues, little things somebody said that might have hurt our feelings, little differences of opinion on how you want to preach. We set those things aside. I want to make this very clear. If we're going to be a unified church, either on the earth, in the city, or even in this building, we're going to have to not let our frustrations with each other ever be bigger than the name of Jesus on the earth. You guys with me? So look, let me uh, just remind you and tell you that whatever it is we're trying to do, we're going to have to fight the good fight for unity because the church Jesus is building will always be the church Satan is attacking. And God has a heart for his children to be unified. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have given us such a beautiful picture of what could happen on the earth if we could lay aside secondary things and keep our focus on why you left us here and what you've done for us. Because as we, as we look at Jesus hanging on the cross and his body pierced, nothing should ever come before that. Nothing. So God, today we, we confess and we repent before you if we've allowed disagreements and, and, and petty arguments and, and even things that we may think are important but still secondary. Divide us from those who also know who Jesus is and have also been saved by his blood. God, would you cause us in our own hearts to keep our attention on you and to not let our frustrations with each other become primary. God, this has to be a work of your spirit and our humility. And so we submit that to you and ask you, God, would you build your unified church? And would you bring us along to be part of that? If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you who have yet to make Jesus your king. See, God is perfectly holy. The problem is we're not. You know, we've talked about a divided church today. Well, that division is a result of our sinfulness. The good news is God didn't want to leave us in our sins or allow us to pay for them for eternity. So he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life on the earth so that when he was crucified on the cross, his bloodshed and his body broken could pay for our sins. It's what we call the free gift of salvation because we're forgiven for our sins if we place our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then the same power that raised him from the dead offers us eternal life. But that free gift is one that we have to receive. And if you've never done that, if you've never exchanged the life you've been living for the one that Jesus has for you, I want to help you do that right now. Wherever you are, would you simply pray and say something like this to yourself and to God? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven my simple prayer here today. Would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? Amen. Would you all help me celebrate with them, everybody?